Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. Before we get stuck into this week's episode, here are a few ways in which you can support what I'm doing. First and foremost, share the podcast. Maybe that's telling your friends about the show, recommending a specific episode to them that you think they're going to like, or sharing the episodes on your social media. If you want to represent the podcast, then there's downtime t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies available now over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. If you want a little bit more downtime in your life, then you can join my newsletter where I'll provide you with a bit of behind the scenes info on the podcast, interesting bits and pieces from around the mountain bike world, some mini reviews of products that I've been using and like, partner offers and more. You can do that over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Otherwise, don't forget to follow the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. You can do that by hitting the button in your podcast app right now, or there's buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. If you've done all of that, then please also give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook too, where we're at Downtime Podcast. It's the best place to keep up to date. And if you want to get in touch, you can send me a message there. All the links for all of that are over in the show notes for this episode on downtimepodcast.com. As always, you can either listen to today's episode here or if you prefer to watch it, you can now do that from 7pm UK time on the day the episode launches over on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash at Downtime Podcast. I'll also pop a link to the video in the show notes over on my website, downtimepodcast.com. All right, this week I'm joined by Nick Lester. Nick is a data acquisition and telemetry specialist who's worked at Commensal Bicycles and been a mechanic and data acquisition guy for the Commensal 100% downhill team. We sat down to hear how Nick got involved in the data side of downhill riding and racing. Hear how Nick works with data systems and what he's learned from his time working with some of the top riders. Nick loves a puzzle, so we dig deep into bike and cockpit setup and the impact it can have on how the bike rides. We talk about suspension setup, what the different adjustments do, and what feelings on the bike might lead us to wanting to change certain settings. There's a lot to learn here, so without further ado, here's Nick Lester. Nick Lester, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you today? Uh, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really good. Not too bad, you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, mate. Let's, uh, before we get into the detailed side of things, because you're definitely a detailed guy, um, let's just get a little bit of background and just give us a little bit of uh, a run into how mountain biking became part of your life. Um, I was quite late, I guess, like maybe 11 or 12. I just realized that I used to spend a lot of time on my bike as a kid. And um, I remember my dad having a chat with me saying that it would be quite good if I got into a sport and um, I didn't want to play, I didn't want to play a team sport like football or anything. I was never into that. And he tried me, he tried to get me and my brother into golf when we were younger, but I was never one for that either. Um, So then we just explored the idea that I love riding my bike. So let's see what it was like to to do that as a more you know more structured as a hobby rather than just riding around and i joined a cycle club near me um got involved in cross-country mountain biking which was complete hell um <laughs> i haven't got the stamina i haven't got the build for um for that sort of sport and i'd be slogging my guts out and these little whippy kids would be going past me like i was stopped and it was just demoralizing and painful <laughs> um i did get involved in a bit of time trialing um which i was pretty good at and i did some velodrome cycling as well um but yeah 
for the longest time, as long as I've been a fan of mountain biking, it's always been about downhill for me. But um, I couldn't get to race it. I think my mum and dad used the excuse that it was a bit too expensive, but I think they were also a bit worried about me doing it. Fair enough, man. What about on the like work and education side of things? Is there an engineering background there? Like, is it have you always been quite technical? Uh, there's no engineering background. Um, I've done all sorts of jobs. The longest one I did was I worked for 15 years at a paper mill making um, banknote currency, uh, banknote paper. Um, and then I started, in one of my roles there, I started using um, a system we had called Pi, which monitors all the all the paper machines, um, the machines that process the paper once it's formed into rolls. At every single stage, the this system was monitoring all the machinery that was used to make the paper and then, like I say, process the paper all the way till it went out of the door. And um, I used to find looking at that sort of stuff pretty fascinating and you could get an idea of why machines had certain amounts of downtime when you started looking at that system and or you, you might be able to get an idea of what sort of preemptive maintenance was going to be needed by using that sort of stuff. And it just got me fascinated in in sort of using data um really that was the first sort of glimpse i had of it was using it in that sort of environment interesting okay fair play and what about racing were you were you getting into mountain bike racing have you done a bit of downhill racing in your time i've done a little bit now i didn't start downhill racing till quite late um and it's just a very sort of grassroots level um as i did do cross country um but yeah it was it wasn't until I started racing downhill, and I was a bit—I was a bit older as well. When when I started racing downhill, I was—I uh, can't remember now. It was maybe t- ten years ago or something like that. And it was—I was just a bit more aware of what I needed to be doing, you know, if I wanted to be good at it. Um, so yeah, it was—I took the downhill racing more seriously than I took the cross-country racing. Um, but that's probably that's also because I enjoyed it a lot more as well. Yeah, fair. And is that so? Is that where the interest in bike setup comes from? Is getting yourself to a position where you can be faster in the downhill racing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was looking at ways to make myself faster. I was trying to, um, I was trying to train properly and eat properly, um, and I was always quite. I was always interested in bike setup, but it was it always seemed a bit like a, a black art to me, especially without the use of any data. It just seemed like. Um, you had to be very experienced at understanding what a bike was doing in order to then know what changes to make on it. Um, and that was something I figured you really got from just spending a lot of time on the bike um, and being in work full time as well. It wasn't something I could do. I couldn't get that much bike time that I was going to really sort of understand the nuances of it through just through feel and experience. And there was no kind of data acquisition system i guess available certainly not at a consumer level uh, until relatively recently so what sort of stuff were you puzzling over on your bike before that became available um it was it was things like basic geometry and um uh like bike setup things like uh, stem length handlebar width lever angle tire pressures um i was playing with suspension as well but it was like i say it just seemed a bit it all seemed a bit like guesswork because I wasn't entirely sure what adjust the adjustments I was making, what effect they were having. Because I wasn't riding consistently enough either to be able to 
to go just off feel to say that 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 extra two clicks of low speed compression was what I needed. It was it was too hard for me to tell. Um, and also, I wasn't riding um, I wasn't riding the same sort of track regularly enough to. Uh, I had way too many variables in there, so it was just a lot of um, fiddling with with um, sort of uh, I say handlebar stuff and uh, tire pressures and things like that really yeah fair we'll talk a bit more about some of the more i'm going to use the word straightforward it's not straightforward but some of the more simple bike setup (laughs) stuff as well but obviously data did become more available um there's been various systems at different levels over the last few years that have become available to a consumer was it an obvious choice then for you to go and get your hands on something like that once it started to be out there it wasn't obvious no i remember um there was a a podcast I listened to with Dave Garland where he was talking about his Stendex system. And that's what really sort of got me interested in in these systems and how you can use them in mountain biking and in and in racing as well. Especially what he was explaining the Stendex system could do. Um and then it was maybe that was like 2017, and then it was 2020. I started it was again it was from my point of view to try and make me quicker as a racer. I started looking at trying to get one of the systems, but I couldn't really justify the cost um just for me. Um and then it was with a phone call on a phone call with Dave where we sort of explored the option of then it becoming like I could use the system to pay for itself by offering it to help other people get their bikes set up as well. Um and then it sort of evolved from there really. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has. Yeah, so it's the Stendex system was the one that you you chose initially. Just talk us through the system and like what sensors it has on the bike, and then we'll talk a little bit about what you can do with that. Yeah, the, the Stendex was the first one I got. It has um, it has a data logger with several sensors that plug into it, including a camera, which is all synchronized with the data as well. So you have um front axle g-force sensor you have a rider input sensor you have a gyro sensor um rear wheel speed sensor uh rear axle g-force sensor and then front and rear brake pressure sensors as well um and then so the gyro sensors the gyro sensor does about uh i don't know six six different jobs because it can measure all the pitch and angles and diving and squatting of the frame um front and rear axle g-force sensors measure the forces coming from the trail to the to the suspension the rider input sensor measures the you use that to sort of um analyze the rider weight distribution and how much force they're putting through the the front of the bike and by that you can sort of calculate where they are with regards to the rear of the bike as well um and then rear wheel speed is rear wheel speed brake pressure is brake pressure in bar in the brake hose rather than um sort of at the caliper mm-hmm. there's loads and loads it can do and it gives you so much data that you sort of have to pick which bits you want to look at and depending on which ones you want to look at depends on um what sort of criteria you're trying to narrow down if you know what i mean um yeah so you sort of if you wanted to look at suspension then you would look at front and rear axle g-force um rider input and braking to then you get an idea of 
the effect the rider has on the suspension, how the axles are dealing, how the suspension is dealing with the G-forces, and then if there's any influence from the braking, for example. Yeah. Um, and then with the gyro sensor, you can sort of, one of the cool things you can look at is oversteer and understeer. So you can see from the lean angle and the corner arc, you can see how the rider en- enters and exits a corner and what's happening in between, whether the bike's trying to stand up. And then if it is, you can look at whether the brakes are on. And so there's so much you can do with it. it it's uh, still to this day, the probably the most advanced system you can get. Yeah, incredible. And not only have you got all of those data channels, but I guess you can then calculate further data channels, right? By subtracting one from the other or whatever, you can look at a huge amount of different things. Like, how, Where do you start? How do you learn how to use a system like that um i would have been completely lost if it wasn't for the countless hours i spent on the phone with dave um he was so generous with his time and his knowledge um and then unfortunately when he passed in late 2020 um it was sort of then there was only really i believe there was only really myself nigel reeve and craig miller who were using it to any sort of great degree so then I spent a lot of I, my phone calls just basically switched to Nigel and um, sometimes Craig as well. And uh, we were going to, I think the plan was to try and keep the system going and, and keep the development of it going because it's such a such an incredible system. Um, but then it's sort of, I don't know, the, the company that made the hardware got sort of um, bought out by a motorsport company. So their priorities changed. So. A lot of the learning came from Dave and Nigel, and then a lot of it came from just um, I had the bike on the system on my bike for a long, long time. So I was just looking at my own data, um, and then playing around with different the different channels. And then, like you say, you can you can um, sort of tweak it so you have um, the channels working in different ways. You can create your own channels using um, maths. You can export the raw data and then start messing around with it in um, Excel or MATLAB or different data processing softwares, which I'm quite a fan of doing. And then, so it's it's been a bit of trial and error from the start with the Stendex system. Um, but I, it would have been a lot harder if I didn't have Dave's help and Nigel's help and Craig. Shout out to them. Yeah. And yeah. You've, subsequently, you've done some motorsport qualifications in data analysis as well. Is that right? Does that kind of help things? I think so. Yeah, it was because I have because I have pretty much zero experience in it. I wanted to try and get an understanding of how this sort of technology has been used in other um, sports and motorsport are quite famous for using it a lot to great effect as well. So um, there is no there are no um, courses for doing this in mountain biking, none that I'm aware of. So I. Um, I signed up to do two with the High Performance Academy, which is an Australian company, and they've they've done two really good courses in um, data acquisition and telemetry and um, using it to set up vehicles and you know calibrating sensors and all sorts of stuff. So I'd, I'd say like eighty percent of it was pretty pretty valuable, and then twenty percent still still valuable, but let, it doesn't relate so much to. To what i'm trying to do yeah it's cool though because i don't think many people in the mountain bike world will have gone to the extent of getting those qualifications and digging in that far so let, let let's talk about your own setup initially because i'm guessing you spent a lot of time with it on your own bike 
Mm. What did uh, what did you discover about your own setup? Uh, that my braking was horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> in, in what way? <laughs> I just <clears throat> I'm, I'm I was putting on. I still do it, but not quite as bad now. But I'm I'm very bad at dragging brakes through corners. Um, so I was very quickly, and that was using my riding was one example. Dave could give me of the effects of braking in a corner and how you can see it trying to stand the bike up, and how you can you can see that the rider weight shifts around. Um, uh, so yeah, I quickly realized that I'm braking in the wrong place, in the wrong places. Um, and how I apply the brakes and come off the brakes was quite interesting. There was a lot of sort of feathering or second guessing myself, um, which again, just leads to more instability. Um, with regards to suspension, I wasn't running anywhere near enough sag. I was doing a very typical thing of running it far too stiff and far too slow. So. <clears throat> Um, when I started going through some changes and Dave was sort of explaining to me or recommending some things to do based on what he'd seen from the data, then I was starting to find that the bike was a lot more balanced. I had way more grip. Um, the mechanical changes like suspension setups happen instantly. And then things like working on your braking is something that requires practice because it's so instinctive and it's something you've probably been doing for years. So I'm still working on that now, but, um, yeah, it's all. There, there was a lot of stuff wrong with my bike. <laughs> Do you still run a system on your bike quite regularly? Yeah. Yeah, quite often, especially if I'm trying something like I've just put a, a Manitou Dorado on my downhill bike. So I put the system on to, to help me get that set up. But also I'll run, I'll run the full system where I can. So that one I'm using the BYB system. So I can also monitor my braking with that in a different way, but so every time I am trying to set the bike up with something different, I'm also um, still looking at still looking at what else I can improve with regards to my technique and especially my braking. Awesome. So you've you've done obviously a lot of work on your own bike. You set up a business, uh, I think, just before COVID called Dynamics. Um, Dynamics, yeah. Help, how, how, helping other people get set up, um, and that's obviously uh, been a lot of learning for you. And from there, you've kind of work your way into the world cup circuit and you you spent some time over the last couple of seasons i think involved with commentar in different ways can you can you tell us a little bit about i guess how that opportunity came up and then like the sort of stuff that you've been doing with those guys i know there's certain elements that we can't go into for various reasons but just to give us a bit of an overview yeah so i i started dynamics in 2020 in august 2020 so right in the middle of covid really but i did that knowing that i needed time to sort of learn the system and and you know sort of fully understand what i'm doing um so it wasn't till february 2021 i think i started working with customers and my first customer was jack redden okay um so that was a pretty cool experience to go up and i went up to his place we did a day's testing at his little private test track and then we did a day at revs um and that was pretty cool and then i was sort of building up the social media aspect of things and building up a following um and then it was through Instagram I got talking to um, one of the head of R&Ds at Common Sal. Um, and then we we got talking. He, he sort of proposed the idea of a job and we sort of kept in contact. I met him at the Leger World Cup in 2021. I went out there with the 555 Gravity team working with um, Luke Williamson. And 
uh, yeah, I met up with with um, the guy from Commonsal, and we had a chat. And next thing I know, I'm going out to Andorra to see what Andorra is like. And uh, yeah, November 2021, I moved out to Andorra and started working for Commonsal. Um, we did. I was involved in um, all, all sorts of product testing and product development. Um, I did countless team camps with most of their riders um even got involved when they um signed a bmx rider um did some testing with him that was pretty cool um and then that led me to be with the common sale 100 team at the world cups last year yeah awesome so you were like mechanic and and data man for a few of the riders at common sale 100 last year yeah yeah i was there to my primary role was a mechanic for Greg Williamson and Millie Johnset. Um, and then I was also there to help any of the other riders. If they wanted to run a data system or if they need any help with, with bikes that I've using data, then I was there to, to help with that. Um, so that was pretty cool. Cause I got to use, we used, um, the motion instrument system with Millie every round. I used the Stendex system with Greg at world champs in the J. And I did help with, I helped Angel with his BYB stuff a couple of times, nothing much because his mechanic was pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I helped Fricks in Val de Sol a little bit as well. So yeah, it was pretty good experience. Yeah, great experience. And and yeah, seeing riders getting set up for so many different tracks as well. Was there, is there really a wide range in how a rider's bike will be going into different tracks or or are people actually keeping within a fairly small window these days? Um, It wasn't, if I use Millie as an example, because I I worked with her, we had data on her bike at every round. Um, It was mainly, there were no drastic settings changes really. Um, Yeah, it was, it it was sort of one or two, well, two or three clicks here or there on, on most stuff. Um, but I think a lot of it would depend if if we did the rounds in a different order, I think the setting changes would be slightly bigger. You know, if you went from, um, if you went from Leo gang to Val de Sol, the setting changes would be bigger than if you went from Leo gang to Lenzide. Yeah. So I think a lot of it depends on what order you do the tracks in, but last year in particular, it wasn't, if I, yeah, I'd have to go through the settings again, but. I don't remember any. I don't remember any massive, massive changes. It was um, mostly the the spring rate stayed the same. It was some damping changes, but nothing, nothing huge. Fair enough. What What would you say then are the main differences between like bike and suspension setup for a regular rider, or and comparing that to the pros? Is there is there a big difference in how you would set up a bike? Fundamentally, there isn't. You you want the bike to do the same job regardless of the rider that's on it um you when you're dealing with a world cup rider they are riding uh they are riding at a speed and a rate that's a lot higher than your average rider so they are hitting stuff harder um and they're they're everything is to a another level but you still even with your regular rider you still want the bike to behave in the same way you you still want in an ideal world you still want um depends on the rider preference but generally speaking the more balanced the bike can be the more predictable it is in terms of 
um, dynamic sag and compression and rebound speeds and um, the more balanced you can make them, the easier the bike is to ride, the more predictable it's going to be. Um, and that goes for a World Cup rider or your average rider like me. It's, um, you just want the bike to behave itself, basically, um, and offer, in some regards, with your average rider, maybe you're trying to give them a level of comfort rather than performance. Whereas with a World Cup guy you're, or a World Cup rider, you're trying to give them, you know, you're trying to optimize their grip and their um, stability of their bike. But generally speaking, I think you'd, you'd want the outcomes to be the same. Yeah, that makes sense. It fe- it feels like in general, there's like three areas of, let's call it setup, that all overlap, I suppose. There's, there's the bike setup, and I'm talking like physical changes. So, you know, if you've got reach adjust, chain stay length adjustment, bar roll, bar height, bar width, stem length, that kind of stuff. You've got your suspension setup, so your sag and your, you know, your damping, effectively controlling compression and rebound speeds and then you've got rider technique mm-hmm. i think as the third like area that also impacts how all of those things work together does that does that sound reasonable and like like maybe we can work through all three of those and just get some of your thoughts on the different areas and and maybe some advice on like what people might want to think about when they're out riding and helping them get like a better setup for them yeah i think that's that's pretty much right you sort of there are there are three maybe four then there are maybe four areas so you'd you'd have like geometry um ergonomics suspension and then probably like rider technique as well um so geometry is geometry is things like your um your bar height your bar rise your stem length um uh, chain stay length, all those sort of variables. You have ergonomics, which are things more like um, lever angle and position, cleat position. Um, then you have your suspension setup, which is spring rate, damping, and then rider techniques, which then relates to your braking, weight distribution, um, and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, those I'd say they were, those were the four areas that the four uh the four areas that you can impact with with some pretty when you use data the right way you can impact them pretty significantly for the better yeah so maybe maybe start on the like the cockpit side of things can you give us some examples of things that you've seen have an impact on how the bike and rider package performs like whether that be i don't know bar or bar width whatever it happens to be there's certain examples you can give of changes that have been made that have helped people because i think a lot of people just set that stuff up until it sort of feels right in inverted commas but like it's just a comfort Mm. thing or it felt like your last bike is there stuff we should be looking for there that could give more gains if we experiment a bit yeah potentially yeah it's not something i think it's something people are reluctant to play around with because like you say they get comfortable and then that becomes normal so if you start messing around with it it's all, then it doesn't become normal. It becomes unfamiliar, and then that requires some adjustment. But I think w- if you don't do that, you miss out on quite a lot of potential benefits that you could have. Um, so bar roll is quite a good example because bar roll can adjust the 
your actual reach, so where your where your hands contact the bars, by rolling the bar backwards and forwards, you change that reach position slightly, but then you also put the the position of your your contact position with the bars then changes in relation to the steering axis through the through the steerer tube. So if you roll the bars back, you could potentially put the if you draw a vertical line, um, a horizontal line between the grips, a contact point between where your hands are on the grips directly across. And then you can see with bar roll, you can see where that line is. If you attach a bit of string as an example, then you can see where that string is above or behind or in front of the steerer tube. Um, that can have quite a significant effect on handling, either making it more agile or slowing it down. Um, it's a similar effect to stem length, but not not quite the same because stem stem length can move everything forward um, in a much more drastic way with regards to its relationship, the whole steering relationship to the front axle. Um, so yeah, there's there are some some subtle things to do if you just play around with it. You can find that it's it doesn't take much for you to find something that works works for you you know, in a, in a slightly better way that you wouldn't have even, you might not have thought of before, just because like you say, you've stuck with your sort of bog standard setup. Yeah. So just going out and literally try and roll, rolling the bars back quite a bit and rolling them forward quite a bit and doing two different runs and seeing how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same as, as using the bracketing technique when you're trying to set up suspension, um, go to extremes so that you can make sure you feel a difference and then, um, sort of move it move it less and less until you find somewhere that you're you're quite happy with and yeah. always sort of just asking yourself the simple question is this better or is this worse and then from there you can it's quite easy to find an improvement yeah and i guess that's a straightforward one you don't have to uh get a hacksaw out you're not cutting metal it's all pretty simple stuff yeah 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 you just need a you just need an allen key and a bit of string really <laughs> Interesting. What about brake position? Because there's a lot of talk about like lever angle and things like that and bite point and that sort of stuff. And a lot of people, I think, think about it more from like a body ergonomics perspective and trying to reduce arm pump on on rougher, longer tracks. But is there an impact there on like how you're loading the bike, depending on your lever angle? Yeah, there can be. Yeah. Moving your lever angle can have an effect on the weight distribution of the rider. Um there's something to bear in mind if you need to make a, a smaller adjustment to to weight distribution, you can use lever angle for that. Um, but it's always a game of compromises as well. Whenever you make one adjustment somewhere, you're going to have an effect somewhere else. So it's bearing in mind, it's sort of understanding um, if I move this lever up slightly, then was you know that could potentially move the rider's weight distribution slightly further back um but then you could also affect where their elbows are um where their head is and then also moving their weight distribution around means that your dynamic sag could change slightly as well <laughs> so it's yeah it's a minefield sometimes you just you make one adjustment to make one thing better and you've made three things worse yeah are there certain things like if you're riding and you're feeling certain things, would there be particular indicators of weight positioning being an issue for you in your riding? Um, possibly. I mean, your, your weight distribution, I feel like your weight distribution would have to be quite far out for you to 
for it to have a physical impact as in like maybe you feel like you're getting sore wrists and that might be because your weight distribution is really far over the front but i feel like you would have much bigger problems if your weight was that far forward before you felt sore wrists if that makes sense yeah what about like in ride characteristics though like would you start to you know if you're constantly feeling like you're losing the front end for example is that a good indication that weight distribution could be the problem or is it again it's i'm sure it's more complex than that but no it is sometimes it is that simple if you if you do feel like you're losing the front or or the back isn't the back wheel's not staying behind you it's sort of skipping around sometimes that can be due to the fact that the weight is just not in the right place or it's too biased one end um but in order to start going into that sort of depth you need to make sure all the other bits are right in the first place you need to make sure that the before I would start looking at the rider weight distribution, I would make sure that the suspension's doing what we needed to do first. Yeah. Um, just in like the base, the fundamentals, make sure the the dynamic sags in the right place and and those sort of things. Um, and again, that a lot of that depends on the rider preference as well. Um, but yeah, it's some some feedback you get from the bike will will be down to. Will be a telltale sign of your weight distribution not being in the right place, and typically that can be either a, a light or washy front end, or a back end that won't sort of stay behind the front wheel. It sort of skips around or doesn't feel like it's tracking. You know, same similar thing. You sort of you can lose the back end just as easily. You can lose the front with the weight in the wrong place. Yeah, we've used that term dynamic sag a few times we should probably just explain that and how mm. it differs from static sag yeah so static sag is what you'd measure in the car park um or the garage or whatever it's just, it's sort of a, a good place to start in order to make sure that you've got the right spring rate whether that's you know air pressure or coil or whatever um but the dynamic sag for me the dynamic sag is the much more important figure which is the sort of your your average sag during a run um so it's sort of it's your ride height effectively so it'll be where your bike sits in the travel um through throughout the run so that is that is different from the static sag and that's going to be impacted i guess by low speed compression more than anything else but impossible to measure without some form of data acquisition equipment right currently anyway yeah yeah it's impossible yeah it's impossible to measure without a a data acquisition system of, of sorts but primarily it's not that is still a fundamental that you want to sort with air pressure or or uh, spring rate rather than damping at this point it's still it's the same adjustment you would make in the car park for your static sag but you're doing it to you're doing it after a run so if you came down and you if if a rider came down and we were going for a balance setup and we wanted um 30 sag front and rear and they had they had nearly 30 in the back, but they only had 22 in the front. Then I would suggest that we take some air out of the fork or um, look at a different coil in the fork, depending on what system they're using. Um, before, And so that that's the sort of basic you want to get right before you touch the damping. Got yeah. Okay. And, and on the weight distribution side of things, like bikes have changed shape quite a lot in the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years. Um, has the way that you ride a modern bike 
does it differ from how you would have ridden a, a bike 15, 20 years ago from a weight distribution and body positioning perspective? Like, and, and is that something that certainly older riders like myself should be like aware of? Cause we're programmed to ride in a different way. So the way modern bikes want to be ridden maybe. Yeah, I think so. I think I, I haven't, I know there were data acquisition systems around a long time ago on the older bikes, but I haven't seen any, any data from them. So, but I'd be guessing, I'd, I'd suggest that, and, and what you see when you watch older, older um, race footage or riding footage is that the riders moved around a lot more on the older bikes um, compared to, compared to now. So their upper bodies now and their hips tend to sort of stay above the bottom bracket or, you know, in, in one position. Um, and then they, they sort of, they rotate more. Whereas before on the older, shorter bikes, the riders were constantly, they seem to constantly be moving their, their whole bodies around a lot more. Um, just, I think mainly because there was just a lack of room on them and they were just being moved around a lot more. Suspension would have, would have been a lot worse back then as well. Do you, so do you think like someone who's been riding for a long time should be kind of conscious about how they're positioning on a modern bike, like trying to stay in the middle of the bike. Do you think that's important? Uh, I think, I think it's more, it would be more important to them now than when they rode before. I think now the, the geometry of the bikes is so good and the suspension has become so good that the, the bikes themselves are a lot more stable. So they require a lot less movement from the rider. Um, that's not to say a rider can just get on there and, and be a passenger on the way down. You still have to, you still have to put inputs in and you still have to, to sort of depends how aggressive you are as well. But, um, the, yeah, it's something I feel like riders of an older generation or that have been riding for a long time probably should think about a little bit more is how much are they moving and do they need to move that much? Is, is their weight in the right position? Um, and are they getting, it's something that you, you, it's like, it's like braking when you give a, a rider feedback on their braking, it's not something they would have necessarily thought about before, but once you show them what their braking is like using data and where they're braking on a the track, then they become more aware of it. So especially when they come up to that section on the track again, they know not to brake or maybe they shouldn't break as much. Um, and it's a similar thing. I think this is where video footage can come in quite handy. If you video a rider coming down the hill and you could, you could sort of point out to them that, you know, did you realize that you were moving your, your weight that far off the back when you, you probably don't need to, there's nothing to suggest that you, you need to be doing that. And in fact, by doing that, you're making your life harder by unsettling the bike and, um, you sort of disturbing the whole, the whole system the whole rider and bike is a system and they need to work well together. So you need to be able to visualize or show, show a rider what's happening when they're moving around on the bike and if they need to be doing that or not. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hard, hard thing to reprogram as is like say, as is the braking, right? Let, let's talk a little bit about braking. What are the negatives of, of kind of braking in a turn and braking when we don't need to, or feathering rather than kind of being hard and on and off the brakes? The main, from what I, all the research I've done, I've done quite a lot of work on the, the effects of braking on the stability of the chassis or the bike, if you like. And braking is a necessary evil. 
So you have to do it, but it has such detrimental effects on on the bike that and and the rider. Like I say, that whole system of the bike and the rider, it has such a detrimental effect on it that you want to do it as little as possible and in as controlled a way as possible. So when when you brake, especially in a corner, what you tend to see is the bike is the bike is trying to. Firstly, your your weight moves around depending on how hard you brake, but typically even a little bit your the rider weight will move around a bit the um bike then becomes unsettled the bike if it's lent over the bike wants to try and you can see the bike trying to stand up so <clears throat> you're compromising your grip as well because um tires typically can only do one job at a time so they're either trying to grip or they're trying to slow down when you're trying to combine the two Again, it's it's that game of compromises. They're not going to do both as well. So when you come into a corner, if you can find an area to do your braking before the corner, and then when you go into the corner, ideally you want to be off the brakes. So you, the bike is settled in its in its um sort of dynamic sag position where its geometry is most effective. The tires are doing their one job to the best they can. And the chassis isn't being influenced by any braking forces or right away distribution. So everything tends to just work better um, because the brakes aren't involved. But I understand in, in 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 the real world, that's not always possible. There are always times when you're going to have to drag a brake around a corner or especially when I, when I did work with the Common Cell Enduro project team, there was quite an interesting thing there where they don't have, Enduro riders don't have the luxury of um being able to practice the the same track over and over again before they race it so they do their use of braking is quite different to downhillers in the fact that they sometimes use their they're using their brakes a lot later um sometimes in a more aggressive manner but sometimes they've even described it as using using the brakes to sort of help them get around a corner as well especially if it's one they're they're unfamiliar with so it's um yeah, there's a lot of braking is a complete minefield of stuff. There's so many rabbit holes you find yourself going down. But the, at the very basic level, try and get your braking done before the turns is what you're saying, I think. Yeah, fu- yeah, exactly. Yeah, fundamentally, if you can not brake in a corner, that's gonna that's gonna be the best scenario because and races and a one in corners. So um, yeah, the quicker you can come into a corner and go out of a corner. And the more stable you can be during the whole thing, the the much better place you'll be. But that's very easy for me to say. <laughs> yeah, and hard for all of us to do. Let's talk yeah. a bit about um, suspension setup then. And it's going to be super hard to get into loads of detail on this, but have you got some like fundamental rules of suspension setup that we could maybe go through? Like I'm guessing the first thing is getting your sag right, getting your spring rate right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the... That's one of the things I learned from Dave pretty quickly was was that. And also he was a big he was always sort of pushing 30% sag front and rear, which sounded like a lot to me. Um, but then when I tried it on my bike and and the damping was right as well, the the bike just completely transformed. It was like I I had I had grip I didn't realize I had. Um, the bike felt a lot more controlled and stable because the, the geometry was in, in a better place. Um, so static sag and dynamic sag are, 
are two massive, massively important factors that get overlooked quite a lot. I think, um, and they're they're soup. They're, they're you can't even adjust. You can't even get the damping right before you've got that bit right. That's how important they are. Yeah, fair enough. So let's assume we've got sag right. We're running somewhere around that thirty percent mark. Where would you go next? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, I mean, for most people, I guess you go in the manual for your forks and your shock. You look at what the table recommends. You'll set that. Some people probably won't even do that. Like, that's your starting point to go and work from. Is that the right approach, or would mm-hmm. you take a different stance there? Like, how would you go about getting towards a a base setting? I suppose. Um, it's quite tricky if you don't if you don't have a data acquisition system, then the best place to start is probably the the, the settings the manufacturer suggests. Um, just as somewhere to start, it's not going to be, there's a, a high possibility it's not going to be right, but it's better than, than just shooting from the hip and trying anything. Um, so then you would, so once you've got your SAG right, you, you put in, try the recommended settings and then you have to, this is what I've learned as well, working with some younger riders too. Now you have to sort of think about what's happening when you're riding. So pick a trail you're familiar with and that you can ride pretty consistently and go down it and then start thinking about what's happening on the bike. Um, do you feel like you're getting a lot of feedback from from the trail? Or do you feel like the the bike turns in like you want it to or... When you push when you push into a corner or a jump, do you feel like it generates speed or does it just sort of does it just sort of suck it up? Um how does it feel on big square edge hits when you go, you know, steaming into a rock garden, for example, what's happening? Do you feel like you're getting kicked or bucked or do you feel like there's a lot of harsh feedback coming through the handlebars? And then you then you sort of just need to ask yourself you need to have a sort of rough idea of where you want it to be as in like, yes, I don't, you know, that does feel rough to me or I don't feel like it generates speed when I want it to. Um, so then typically with rider input stuff like braking or, or pumping, you can tune that with your low speed compression. Um, the high speed compression is when you, when you go steaming through rock gardens or you're hitting big roots and the, you're asking the suspension to deal with a a big force quickly so then you want to if you if you feel like you're getting a lot of feedback in in super rough sections or big square edge hits then you can um sort of open or close your high speed compression depending on what you want um but it's all it's all about trying to understand what you what you want from the bike and i, I know that's sort of quite a quite a difficult thing to do if you if you don't really understand where to start it's it's tricky i mean you've explained the differences in what like a low speed compression and a high speed compression adjustment is likely to do for the bike what about on the rebound side of things low speed and high speed rebound like what kind of characteristics are they controlling because i think a lot of people struggle to like understand the difference that those those settings are going to make out on the trail and and appreciate there's some overlap but broadly mm. speaking yeah and the 
the rebound, I'd argue, is more important than the compression as well, because that's effectively what's keeping your wheel on the ground and giving you the grip. Um, and high speed compression, um, high speed rebound and low speed rebound overlap a lot more than compression. Um, generally speaking, depends on the the brand of suspension, but um, so the high speed compression. If you, um, what's a good example? If you're riding through a, if you're riding through a section with like a lot of holes or um, sort of steps. What you want the wheel to do ideally is to to sort of maintain contact with the ground and fall not not sort of disappear from underneath you and then take the bars with it but you want the wheel to sort of follow the ground so drop away into the hole but quick enough that the bars you know the front end doesn't drop down if that makes sense you want the you want to try and keep the bars as stable as you can so the high speed rebound will keep 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 the wheel in contact with the ground when the ground doesn't want to keep in contact with the wheel. Um, and then the low speed rebound is your more typical, um, your more typical stuff. So just trying to, um, again, sort of rider dealing mainly with rider input stuff and, um, general sort of trail noise. If you like, you're trying to keep it's, it's recovering from, trying to keep the wheel to recovering from those hits as quickly as possible and, and stay on the ground. Um, so the, the high speed stuff is covers a smaller percentage of the trail, but has a bigger effect on the rebound damping than the low speed does. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Uh, what, what would be an indication of having too little rebound damping on a bike, be that low or high speed? Cause it feels like to some extent, the faster, the better. Like we're staying in contact with the ground bear, we're going to have more grip, but I'm guessing there's a tipping point. Like what sort of things might you feel if you're low or high speed rebound with too, too open, too fast? Um, it would feel, it, it would almost feel like a little bit, it would feel uncontrollable, almost like it's, it's more unstable if you like, because the front wheel or, or the wheels are trying to, everything's trying to come back too quick. So it would, trying to hold a, a line would become trickier. Um, the, the, it would seem less accurate for one of a better expression because the, the bike is trying to, it's recovering too quickly. So the, you go from trying to keep it stable to it becoming instable, um, or unstable because, um, it's effectively trying to keep pushing back and, and it just, almost like a pogo stick it just doesn't sort of it doesn't have any composure to it it's too um yeah pogo sticks the best description for it it just becomes feels uncontrollable and unpredictable yeah it's pushing back against the ground so hard that it's almost pushing itself back off the ground maybe is that fair yeah to a degree yeah yeah especially if you're if you're coming into something pretty rough you want you want the rebound fairly open so that it, it can recover, but then when it's too much, it's like I say, it's trying to it's trying to ride a bucking bronco. It doesn't want to the bike won't want to stay where you put it. It won't want to the wheels won't want to stay in a line. They'll be dancing all over the place, and and effectively what you've done is you've made a rough trail rougher. <laughs> um, and the same can happen if it's if it's too slow as well because the 
the bike never recovers from one hit to the next. So then you start packing up the suspension and that leads to harshness, which can be confused for too much compression damping as well. So it's, um, there is a fine, there is sort of a, an operational window that you want to be in, but it's finding that window that's the tricky bit. I think what we're saying here basically is go and find a, a good bike setup person and go and spend a day with them because you it, it feels like the vast majority of people, unless you're super savvy and you really know how to get a bike set up, you're probably going to come home with your bike in a much better spot. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm coming from a very biased position, but I do feel like um, now these tools are available. Whether you get one yourself or you, you know, you get someone like me to come and help you, um, you you spend all this money on a bike, and they're not cheap, and then you go and take it for it for its ride, and you get it in a position where you think it's working well, and then you ride that over and over again, and it becomes normal. So you think you think my bike's working well. Um, but what you don't realize is you're probably nowhere near how good it can be working. And once you do experience how, how well your bike can work, then all of a sudden sort of at the cost of a day's testing with a, with someone with a data acquisition system and who, who knows what they're doing is, is, uh, it pales in comparison to, you know, to what you thought it might be. It, it might seem expensive at first, but all of a sudden you unlock your six, seven, eight grand bike and it, it becomes this amazing tool that you can push your riding much, much further. Yeah, for sure. And there's uh, certainly in the UK anyway, there's loads more people offering that service now, I guess. So there's a lot of like choice and there's probably also hopefully someone local to you. Yeah. 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 I think there's, I can think of three or four people that are doing it now. And um, yeah, you know, I can't think of anywhere in the country where you wouldn't get one of us to come and to come and help you out. Um, and it's, it's far better than thinking that you need to get a new fork or a new shock when in actual fact, you, you can probably, you will be able to get your current bike set up working far better than it would if you bought a new fork for it, for example, because you still won't know what you're doing with the new fork. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair you've point. probably, you've just got more and more adjustment and you're just, it's, it is just guessing to be, to be honest. And it's what we've been doing for years is you know, everyone who's been riding has been guessing their bike set up for so long um, with regards to suspension. And and now we can give you an insight on what you're doing with your braking and your weight distribution and cornering as well. So it's, there's so much to gain from doing it that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's such a, it's a no brainer really, but I say I'm, I'm very biased. <laughs> No, totally makes sense. Well, let's talk a bit about what you're up to because um, you're working with Muck Off Young Guns this year, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and how that came about? Yeah, that was, um, I've known the owner, Paul, for a couple of years now. Um, and I was super, I was a big fan of the project when it started. It used to be called the Green Snow Collective when it started in 2019. And it was a sort of a youth development program to get um to get fast kids racing and help them understand what it's like to race and give them a route into racing nationals um and then since then it sort of evolved into um muckoff have provided way more support mondrake are a big supporter we've got um brands like stance 
um, Schwab, ODI, uh, HT, Renthal, loads of people have been really supportive of this because now we're going to, now we take riders right up to their first two years as World Cup juniors as well. Um, so this was, it was sort of sold to me like that when I was, um, when I bumped into Paul again in Lenside, I think last year. Um, I didn't have anything fixed for this year. So we got talking again after the race season and it went from sort of being being a mechanic and, and the data guy like I was at the 100% team to now and now I'm the team manager. So it's um, a bit of a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. That's awesome. And I saw you've got some kind of chip on the bike that you can like RF scan and it gives you all the settings, which is pretty cool. Yeah, they're just um, just NFC tags. Um, so the idea was that you was I was going to put one on the frame, and then it would have the same. It would have all the settings on the on the bike. So I don't know if you've seen. I did a. I've got a Dynamics settings book, which you can buy on Amazon, and that sort of evolved after a year's World Cup racing. Whereas before, it was just suspension settings and tire pressures and wheel stuff, and now it's got all your geometry stuff in there, all your ergonomic stuff and everything. <clears throat> and the idea was that I could put these NFC tags on the bike and it'd have all that information on it. Um, but they're quite limited in their size. So a more useful, um, a more useful way to use them is to put, put them on various components. And so like on the fork, you would have the suspension settings and the last time it was serviced on the wheels, you would have tire pressures the amount of sealant in there, average spoke tension. Um, uh, you could have on the brakes. You could have when the when the pads last went in, the last time they were bled, the compound of the pads on the handlebar one. You could have all the cockpit setup. So it's quite a good way of tracking settings, but also the life of the part and when it was last serviced or maintained or bled or whatever. Um, because there's been times where as that that dynamics book is great, but there's been times when I haven't had it to hand, and it's quite handy just to be able to scan the tags and get get all that information you need. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a cool uh, cool idea, and uh, I've seen you love a graph. There's a uh, a lot of uh, analysis <laughs> coming from you. Um, I saw you'd looked at rider performance for left foot forward versus right foot forward, which was kind of interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, that was curiosity got the better out of me there and i just wondered if there was any any sort of correlation between how successful the rider was and which foot forward they had so i just sort of that was another rabbit hole i jumped down <laughs> what was the conclusion of that i can't remember off the top of my head um i think i think generally speaking left foot forward riders were more successful but it was so minute that it 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 didn't really it was it wasn't concrete enough to say that if you were left foot forward you were going to be a more successful rider um and it wasn't i didn't take the entire um data from from all the world cup riders i just picked like i think i picked the i picked 10 random elite females and 20 random elite males i think off the top of my head so if i was going to do it again i would look at the entire field i think just to get a better idea um so yeah it was just uh, uh, just my curiosity running wild 
<laughs> Fair enough. And I also saw you'd done some analysis um, with and without Oche, and you'd taken some measurements there. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I was I was quite curious about the O-chain. Um, so I had an accelerometer that I put on my crank and did some runs with the O-chain and without the O-chain. And I also had, uh, what system did I have on there? I think it might have been the motion instruments one. <clears throat> so I was trying to, I was monitoring what the suspension was doing and what my cranks were doing because I wanted to see if the O-chain had an effect on the suspension performance. And um, essentially what it came down to was the O-chain is great at taking out, almost acting like a, a filter for for the general trail chatter. They, they only have a limited window of performance, I think anywhere from sort of four to 12 degrees, depending on how you've got them set up. Um, so they're very good at eliminating kickback, very good at eliminating um, sort of trail feedback through the pedals. And they don't have an effect, or not that I could measure, they don't change the performance of the suspension. So it means you could have your bike set up brilliantly and put an O-chain on without compromising your your suspension setup. Um, what I found is it was it was only a good thing, to be honest. Um, even when you take into account that there is that slight bit of play when you go to engage the pedals again, you very, very quickly get used to that being there and it's not it's not a thing anymore. But the benefits were that your feet were a lot more stable. You, your legs were less fatigued because you weren't having to fight pedal kickback all the time. And it's less cognitive load on the rider as well. It's just one less thing for you to be worrying about. And it's a subconscious thing, but it does, once you've quantified it, you do realize, actually, I am, I am having to sort of allow for this at some point. So, um, yeah, I was quite yeah, impressed with it, to, to be honest. Good to see the data. Yeah, good to see the data on it for sure. I've not seen anyone mm. else do that experiment, so it's cool to see. What are you um what are you puzzling over at the moment then? It feels like you've always got something that you're you've got your brain working on. Um at the minute it's getting my head around a, a, a new bike for the the Muckoff the Muckoff Young Guns team. So I've not worked with a Mondraker summon before. So I'm trying to I have a lot of experience with with common sales, the old V four and the new V five. Um so that's a bike both bikes I feel like I know very well and I want to try and I need to try and get that same level of knowledge with the summum too so um my main that's what I'm working on at the minute is, is sort of understanding that bike um looking at its model there's a piece of software called linkage where you can um look at a particular bike's characteristics and you can see the anti-squat and anti-rise and the the leverage ratio and all these different characteristics of the bike. So I've been trying to get my head around that and find ways we can sort of make that bike, um, optimize that bike for racing, um, and, and do what we can to, to make it as quick as we can. So that's, that's what I feel like I've been doing the last month or so. Good stuff, man. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, but we'll wrap up with our Final four questions that we've asked pretty much everyone. The first of those, if our listeners had £150 to spend to improve their performance on a bike, I think I might know your answer, but what would you recommend they go spend it on? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you could you could probably get a, a day's testing with, with someone for that. Um, 
but if not, obviously I would suggest getting your bike set up properly. But tires is always tires is always the other one I would recommend. Um, yeah, if you can't get a, a, a day a testing day with someone for 150 pounds, then putting putting the best rubber you can on your wheels is is the next best invest the next best investment you could make. I reckon. Fair play. What's your go to at the moment? Um, Magic Marys have been for a long, long time now. Front and rear. I've tried all sorts. I've tried, uh, yeah, front and rear. I do like, um, I have tried a big Betty on the back. Um, and then I tried, I did a custom cut on, on one I, I was working on and it, it needed 300 cuts to sort of get this tread pattern I wanted. And that made quite a, quite a significant difference which i was disappointed with as well because that means if i want to do it again i've got to do another 300 cuts so <clears throat> yeah be careful what you play with <laughs> fair comment all right second one if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16 what advice would you give him um i don't know i feel like at that age i was i was getting quite good i was quite a good time trialer and I was pretty good on the velodrome, but I also discovered that you could start going out and get drinking and meet girls. And <laughs> uh, that probably didn't help me as a competitive cyclist. So, <clears throat> but I don't know. I mean, it, it's, um, yeah, at the same time, I don't think I would change much because I feel pretty privileged to be in the position i'm in um it, i don't know it's a tough one um it's taken me longer than i would have wanted to get to where i am now but i feel like if i tried to do it any sooner it might not have worked with especially with the technology not being available so i guess you just need to sort of have faith in in what you want to do where you want to go um and just just trust the process really and just stick at it. If you have a goal and you want to, you know what you want to achieve, then, um, yeah, just, just stay focused on it and, and do what you can to try and, to try and achieve it. Oh, good answer, man. All right. Third question. If you could have a coaching session from anyone past to present, who would it be? And what would you want to learn from them? Mm. I listen I listen to this podcast every episode I listen to and I never I never really give much thought how I would answer these <laughs> <laughs> um, I was always such a massive fan of Steve Pete when I was sort of I don't know 14, 15 so I would it would be pretty cool to have a a coaching session from Pete um, but then also the way, the way Vulio has applied himself and, and the way he used data and he was so technically minded, it would be pretty cool to not so much a coaching session, maybe because I don't know, I just like to have a conversation with him. I think just try and understand how you, how you are that far ahead of the game. Yeah. It'd be interesting to find out how advanced what they were doing back in the day is compared to what were just kind of becoming normal 
uh, at a World Cup these days because I definitely think they were they were well ahead on a few things back in the days with that uh, that setup. All right, last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Um, I'm I'm very reflective. I suppose it's it's analytical in a way. I do sort of think I tried at the end of most days. I sort of try and make sure or I analyze what I did that day. Did I, did I do the best job I could have done? You know, what were the areas for improvement? What went well? Um, just sort of try and be a bit reflective to, to make sure I didn't miss anything or if I did miss anything, you know, how could I make sure that doesn't happen again? Or what have I learned from that? So I think it's, for me, it's quite important to, to, yeah, reflect on, on, what I've done and how and how it went basically it's the same it's the same when I've when we finished testing with the rider the rider's gone away the bike's set up they're all super happy but then I'll still go through that data for the next two days and see what else I can learn from it so it's yeah just a lot of reflection really interesting I like that that's really cool all right man well if people want to find out a bit more or maybe they want to get a day's testing with you where should they be heading uh, most people get at me through Instagram, which is at Downamics, D-O-W-N-A-M-I-C-S, um, or the website as well, www.downamics.com. Um, so you can get at me, you can, I post quite regularly on the, on the Instagram account and you can see what I'm up to there and you can always drop me a message there or through the website and, and an email either way. Nice one. All right, man. Well, appreciate you taking the time for a chat. It was super interesting. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing how the muck off young guns team get on this year. Best of luck. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Chris. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Nick. I really hope you've enjoyed it. We're going to have a lot more awesome content coming your way over the course of 2023. So make sure that you're following the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app now or head into downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also get a bit of extra downtime by signing up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that by telling your friends about the show, sharing the podcast on your social media, grabbing yourself some merch at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop, or leaving us a review over on Apple Podcasts. All right, that's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. <laughs>